According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, and we are dealing with persuasion and perfection from verse 6. Uh, we got some more to deal with here in terms of perfection. And, uh, and then some considerations with respect to the day of Christ Jesus, that we understand the day of Christ, or the day of Christ Jesus, or the day that we are looking forward to in the body of Christ, the royal family of God in the church age, we are looking forward to the rapture of the church, that is the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, beyond that, it can look into uh, the fullness of time and the new heavens and the new earth, uh, depending upon the context and, and what we're dealing with. Uh, but it is not with respect to what Israel is looking forward to in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, from an Old Testament perspective, through all the prophets and through all the warnings to the Jewish people, the day of the Lord that's coming is a day of great wrath, it's a day of judgment, it's a day of tribulation. It is uh, what they must go through in, in uh, the time of Jacob's sorrow to endure the tribulation, to bring in the, the millennial kingdom. The day of the Lord is not the day of Christ Jesus. All right, we want to be clear on that. And uh, so we'll be describing those uh, distinctions for you here and uh, getting a nice refresher course on what, uh, what we are expecting in the rapture of the church, that moment that could happen at any moment. It could happen even now, and uh, I wish that it does. So uh, rapture pending, let's open with a word of prayer and uh, ask the Father to bless our time of study and uh, proceed into the class that he has prepared for us this morning. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, it's a, it's a command. You command us to assemble, and, and yet it's a command we happily obey because we know, Father, this is all for our benefit. We, we're learning, we're growing, we are um, built up in the faith, and we're strengthened in the inner man. Father, we are transformed. And I thank you for Romans 12, 1 and 2. I thank you for the provision that gets made, Father, as we are transformed through the renewing of our mind, then that hinders the world's uh, conformity that would otherwise occur. And so I thank you, Father, that on this morning we can stand before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Bless our study this morning, Father. Help us rightly divide it. I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, so as we're looking at this here this morning, let me bring up the slide where we had left off. Let's see. Did that work? It worked. Technology is the greatest thing when it does work. And then, uh, yeah. All right. So for a couple of weeks, we spent our time looking at point six, this slide here, where we're dealing with the persuasion principles of patho. Confident persuasion is a great blessing from the Lord. And we saw again and again and again the, the benefit that it comes to letting the word of God persuade you to being persuaded of your salvation, persuaded of your security, persuaded of eternal rewards, persuaded of ministry pursuits. And again and again and again, persuasion was the verb that was applied. Patho was the verb that was applied. When you and I take the Word of God and we come to our own convictions, happy is he that does not condemn himself in what he approves, right? Because we are persuaded in the applications we're making to the Word of God. And this is what bridges that gap. This is what takes objective truth and it puts it into our soul on a subjective basis whereby we respond to that truth subjectively and we live it out according to our convictions. And it's a beautiful thing. And when we let the Word of God do that work and when we allow the Word of God to persuade us in this way. And so we did, uh, looked at all those verses there as it pertains to persuasion. Then we, met, we moved on from there to deal now with perfection, which is the seventh point of study in our outline here. And this is simply an expository outline from verse 3 to verse 11 of the details that are found in the text. And now we're moving on to the principle of perfection. I am persuaded of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so no matter how great the beginning is, it's only a beginning. 
a beginning is not a perfection. And God is never content with simply the beginning. He, that beginning is designed as step one in a process that's going to lead to that perfection. And so again and again we want to highlight this issue on perfection and we shouldn't rest confidently on a great start as if that counts for something. That's only the start. How do we build on that start? What follows that start? And uh, in Galatians 3 he was calling them fools because they had a great start but they were abandoning grace and going to legalism. And that uh, was going to hinder any kind of perfection. That uh, trying to reach perfection in the flesh just isn't going to happen uh, under any circumstances. And so uh, we were looking at the aspects there. All right, We moved on to talk about some of the vocabulary here and this is where we want to pick up this, mo- uh, this morning as we uh, covered subpoint A on Wednesday night dealing with telos. The idea of uh, all of these terms come from the telos root including the epiteleo vocabulary that we have here in Philippians chapter 1. But epiteleo is a verb that speaks of completion Alright? It's an intensive verb. Teleo by itself speaks of completion. But epiteleo intensifies that. The epi prefix is often an intensifying prefix in terms of knowledge and full knowledge, for example. We're accustomed to gnosis and epinosis as a contrast and different, different uh, verbs there. There's all a number of Greek vocabulary that, that do that, that intensify the term with the epi prefix. And that's what we see here with the epi in front of teleo, the epiteleo applications. Uh, but it does come from telos. A telos speaks of an end. It speaks of a, a, a goal, a purpose, a completion. And God is always faithful to bring about His purpose. God never uh, surrenders in defeat or disappointment or shrugs His heavenly shoulders and says, oh well, I gave it my best shot. Uh, God brings about what He intends to bring about. That's part of who He is. And uh, really the fundamental definition of sovereignty is that he accomplishes all his good pleasure. And that's, uh, that's because of who he is and the absolute nature of God's existence. And so, uh, yeah, telos is a wonderful uh, term. And uh, we looked at these expressions from Matthew 24 and John 13. I love that. He loved them to the end is the use there in John 13. And I think about uh, how absolute that is and unconditional that is and how uh, beyond human that is because all too often human applications of love um, don't love until the end, right? They love until they don't love anymore. <laughs> you know, They love until things get tough or they love until circumstances change and, uh, and so forth. But it says with Jesus, He loved them to the end and that's why He laid down His life and went to the cross in the application there. Anyway, um, other uh, verses including some in Hebrews, uh, don't be sh- uh, shocked because Hebrews does have that emphasis on completion and perfection even to the point of discussing our Savior and what it was that our Savior experienced in His being perfected. And that, that's, that's problematic in some thinking and we'll have to address that because our Savior has always been perfect. So how do you perfect perfection? And how does a perfect Savior come and experience suffering for His perfection. Isn't he already perfect? And so we understand that some of this, uh, I think some of this perhaps is, is based upon a flawed English usage that, um, that uses the term perfect in ways that the Bible doesn't use. But we want to, make, we want to keep ourselves biblical in, uh, in our approach on this. So we'll have more to say on that because you'll see more Hebrews references coming up as well. Alright, First Peter 4, 7, perfect love casts out fear and uh, and that. All right, we're ready now today to move on to our second term. We have an adjective. This is a cognate adjective. That means it comes from the same root as telos, and it's teleos, all right? And it's an adjective that uh, can apply to any number of things. Uh, the Strong's number is 5046. It has 19 uses. So once we get uh, saturated with our understanding on the 10 uses of the noun, now we can come back and we can, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the 40 uses of the noun, we can come back and we can add another 19 uses of the adjective. And we can see that a lot of times there's overlap between them and we can find some duplication where in fact we have the noun and the adjective actually in short proximity one with another anyway. But the adjective teleos speaks of something in a descriptive way and describes it as being complete describes it as being mature, describes it as being perfect. And uh, those of you maybe that are approaching more of a mature age might appreciate the fact that the Bible calls that perfection. 
All right, so there you go. My compliment to you here this morning. Um, <laughs> as far as that goes. All right, so let's, uh, let's take a look at these adjectives. All right, starting with Matthew 5. And uh, we want to understand each one for what it's saying. And then I think the totality of them can come together in, in really a, a marvelous way to show us how God is the one that's doing the perfection. Remember, God began the good work. And he didn't start something and then hand it to us and say, all right, now finish it, okay? He didn't start it and say, all right, now it's up to you. And if you fall short, then I'm going to take away your salvation. Or if you fall short, well, then you're going to suffer. No, no. He started it, he finishes it, okay? And that's the whole point here in Philippians 1.6. So Matthew 5.48 in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount here, as it talks about this, you are to be teleos, as your heavenly Father is teleos. And so not only is this a standard of perfection that we're expected to, uh, to uphold and to attain to, but it's a standard of perfection that's defined by God Himself, all right? We, can't, we don't have uh, uh, the uh, freedom to redefine terms, right? We can't, we can't just create our own definition of perfection and say, I'm there, <laughs> okay? Well, as I define perfect, uh, that's me, right? No, as God defines perfect, that's God. And we are to be perfect even as to the degree that on, on the, the, the basis of God himself being perfect. The standard is God. His holiness, his righteousness, his perfection, his nature, that's what he's taking us to. We bear the image of God and in Christ we become partakers of, of that. And so we want to understand this. We want to understand why we're growing in grace and knowledge. Why God is not content with populating heaven with a bunch of spiritual babies for all eternity. That's not His plan. So you are to be teleos as your heavenly Father is teleos. And in the process of this, that means we're learning the Word of God. It's the Word of God that shapes our thinking in this regard. All right, uh, Romans chapter 12 came up in our prayer meeting this morning. And uh, comes up in a lot of applications. Romans chapter 12. Because to me, the great tragedy of um, Christendom today is the lack, the, the biblical illiteracy of too many Christians. That they are born again, they're saved, but they're biblically illiterate. They know, they know no more of the Word of God, no more of the will of God than the average unbeliever on the street. And uh, it's because they're not studying to show themselves approved. They're not humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God, which we're expected to do. And so Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren. See that? Brethren. There's no question. This is addressed to believers. All of Romans is addressed to believers. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. I can't stress enough that the... Uh, the witness to this exhortation by the mercies of God. That's, uh, that's serious language, and God himself is employing it, right? We, we lose sight of this in our modern world. We lose sight of things that are called to witness when somebody is being admonished or they're being abjured, they're, being, uh, they're placed under a, an oath, they're placed under an expectation, okay? And, and now it's just comedy, now it's just, ooh, I swear on my mother's grave. What does that mean? I swear on my mother's grave. What, what, what does that mean? Why would they always invoke deities in their statements? You know, by Jupiter, by George. You know, my dad used to say by George all the time. I never understood that. By George. Why? I'm, I'm calling St. George to witness my whatever? Okay? Anyway, by the mercies of God. God is using this phrase for a reason. The Apostle Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. The, God's mercies are being invoked to bear witness to this exhortation. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We have a great definition of worship right here for the church age. And it has nothing to do with the style of music you like to sing or whether you raise your hands or not or some feeling of holiness when you're all emotional in a church service. Okay? This is a definition of worship right here. And it's living your Christian faith in this fallen world. Presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. You realize our bodies are still sinful things. But we present it as a redeemed thing. Even though we're fallen bodies in a fallen world. 
we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that's our worship. Our worship is when we walk out of this place and we live our lives according to the standard of the Word of God. That's our worship. And then goes on to say, and do not be or stop being conformed to this world. These aren't the unbelievers. Of course they're conformed to this world. They're walking in this world. They're of this world. We're no longer of this world. We're in the world, but no longer of the world, right? Because of our saved status. Do not be or stop being conformed to this world. You had enough conformity before you got saved. Stop that, okay? No more world conformity. But be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And that's where, I tell you, that's where the the failure arises. Because pastors and churches are not dedicated to transforming the mind. They're not dedicated to teaching the Word of God line upon line, precept upon precept. And so instead of transforming the mind, they're just pursuing vanity of vanities. They're just uh, hitting people with entertainment and fun and games and programs and all this silly stuff. And it's not transforming the mind at all. Instead, it's conforming to the age. What's the result of having a renewed mind? There's a consequence to having a renewed mind. And that is so that you may prove, you may demonstrate, you may, uh, you may manifest as approved the will of God. And so you don't just know the will of God, you demonstrate the will of God. You're living the will of God as a public display. Proving is dokimazo, proving is, is uh, manifesting as approved, right? And so it's, it's like you're, you are the exhibitor. You are the display. This world can look at you to see the will of God because you're living it as far as that goes, all right? You're like the, the lady at H-E-B that's showing the little samples of whatever, okay? Little sausage samples, little fish samples, little you know, cracker samples or whatever. And you can go aisle by aisle by aisle and on a good Saturday get a whole lunch out of it if you hit every single spot around the... Uh, around the place. But see, that's what they're doing. They're displaying the product so that you think, wow, this is good stuff, and you go buy some, right? They want you to go buy some and take it home with you. Well, we are to put the will of God on display. You and I being transformed, we are displaying the will of God that you may prove or demonstrate as approved what the will of God is. And then it defines it as that which is good, and acceptable, and teleos. Perfect. Okay? The will of God has perfection as, a, as its component. You can't just do it part way and call it the will of God. You can't uh, obey a little bit and call it the will of God. Because the will of God itself is good and acceptable and teleos, and perfect. And this is a concept that I think comes to the uh, to the core of what we're doing. All right? And it goes on, the rest of Romans 12 outlines how individual believers can grow in their giftedness, can serve one another in a, in a corporate body, and all of this, but it falls under that heading of verses 1 and 2, of being transformed, of living as presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And the, uh, the aspects there. All right, 1 Corinthians 13, 10. What do you think of when you think, what's the first thing that crosses your mind when you think, 1 Corinthians 13. Love, yeah. This is the great love chapter, right? So um, why would I have a love chapter? And um, then perfection. (laughs) All right. So here's our love chapter and all the description of agape love, which clearly is not uh, how the world defines it, but this is how God defines it, because God is love, and here's his description. Love never fails, verse 8. But here's what does fail, all right? Here's what is done away, and here's what ceases. And some of this we studied under spiritual gifts and realizing that, that originally there were 20 spiritual gifts, but today there are only 11. Nine of them were never designed to be permanent spiritual gifts. They were only for the apostolic age. The, the charismatic gifts were apostolic gifts. So, uh, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. 
for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Now, understand what's happening here. We have a contrast that's described as in part, in part. And this, is the, this, this, is, this passage is giving us a definition that perfection is not partial. We have in part, we have in part, and we're making do. Okay? That in the early church, they were making do with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They were putting with the prophecy together with knowledge. And they were able, to, in the early church, until the New Testament was written, they were able to make do with that in part, in part circumstance. We don't do that anymore. We don't need to do that anymore. Because the completion has been given. As it says in verse 10, when the perfect, when the perfect comes, when the teleos comes, the partial will be done away. That is the in part, in part tandem, it will no longer be necessary. And uh, the application is there. Essentially, now that we have a complete canon of Scripture, now that we have a New Testament as well as an Old Testament, we no longer need that in part, in part circumstance in order to operate as a local church. All right, so the aspects of it. If you want more on that, I've got hours of it on the, uh, on the website in the First Corinthians notebook. You can understand how the church age operated without a New Testament as the New Testament was being written and, uh, and the things there. All right, Ephesians 4.13. Ephesians 4.13, another teleos use. purpose for pastors and teachers and for evangelists. You know, every gift edifies, but there were four gifts originally designed to be equipping gifts. And in the apostolic church, it was the apostles and the prophets. In the post-apostolic church, it's the evangelists and the pastor teachers. And so these are four gifted believers that are given by Jesus Christ to local churches for the equipping of the saints. And, uh, We see it here. So um, each one of us, it says in verse 7, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every believer has a spiritual gift. And it's really, it's a mark of conviction when you start to uh, explore that gift and you start to accept what it is that God has called for you to do. And so each one of us receives a spiritual gift. The moment we're saved, we are given a gift. It's the Holy Spirit who gives you that gift. But then Jesus Christ takes gifted believers and provides them to local churches. And we see that here in these verses that then follow. And so um, we talk about Christ, who's the one that descended, he's the one that ascended, he's the one that uh, is giving gifts. He says in verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to man. And I love that. That's actually a change from Psalms where instead of receiving gifts in Psalms, he's now giving gifts in Ephesians. And he is giving gifted believers to the body of Christ. All right. So verse 11, he, this is Christ, not the Holy Spirit. It is a significant difference. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Okay? Pastors and teachers is a hyphenated gift. It's combined together. There's only four some as's in that verse. Okay? He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. The fourth some as is pastors and teachers. There's not a fifth some as to make teachers a separate gift. Not here. All right? And what's the purpose of these gifts? These four are different from the other 16. Okay? I didn't say better, I said different. Every gift edifies, but these gifts are equipping gifts for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so these equipping gifts, this is what Jesus does as head of the church. He takes gifted believers and he assigns them where they need to be for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. See, my gift to pastor teacher was assigned to Austin Bible Church. And Jesus Christ assigned that. That's his prerogative as head of the church. All right. For the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Notice the pastor doesn't do all the work. The pastor equips the flock. So the believers are the ones that, equipped believers are the ones that can do the work of service. 
It's equipped believers that can serve. That should be clear as well. All right. To the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a teleos man. And how do we define that? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. All right, and so we have aspects here. And fullness, by the way, is another uh, principle that as a cognate comes into to view here uh, with perfection. But we all come to this mature man. That's our goal. And I'm glad you're all here this morning because no one uh, ought to be arrogant enough to assume that they've already arrived. <laughs> all right. If you have arrived to the fullness of where God intends to take you, then he would take you home. Your purpose here on earth would be done. And so since uh, we're all still physically alive and still walking our mortal existence on this earth, uh, then it's evident that we have more growth to attain to. There's more equipping that needs to be done. We must humble ourselves under the the mighty hand of God and and present ourselves workmen needing not to be ashamed. And uh, we see it there. And so as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. See, what comes along with equipping comes growing up. (laughs) All right? And the stability of growing up. And we're not tossed here and there. The waves don't uh, throw us... uh, all kinds of different directions. Um, Anyway, by uh, every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. Really, it's love as a verb, uh, truthing, or truth as a verb, truthing in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And uh, that's that's the whole program right there. Okay? Now that, uh, I don't see that in the literature. I don't see that on the, the shelves in the Christian bookstores. I don't see that as the paradigm for uh, you know, the church growth movements and, and all the rest. But this is what God has provided. It's the Word of God that transforms us. It's the Word of God that does its work in you who believe. And uh, we, need to, we need to understand that. And the reason why uh, Ephesians 4 is so powerful, I think, is because it comes... Um, as such a parallel to, to Romans chapter 12, which we just saw earlier, right? In the, um, the aspect of learning Christ, as we see in verse 20. You do not learn Christ in this way. How many people receive Christ but never learn Christ? I'm talking about born-again believers. And don't get me wrong, they trusted in Christ for eternal life. And that's eternal, that's secure. They can't lose that ever but they don't learn Christ. They never grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This passage stresses learning Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him as truth is in Jesus. You see, I'm headed down to verse 23 there where it says that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Most believers don't do that. Okay? Let's understand this for what it is. And, and, and really, <laughs> when it comes right down to it, this reality, when you start looking around and you start seeing more and more born-again non-disciples, you start to realize, wait a minute, my Great Commission is a whole lot bigger than I thought it was. Because my Great Commission is not just go get unbelievers saved. My Great Commission is make disciples. And so clearly... As I'm looking around this planet and I see a lot of unbelievers, of course, I'm going to preach the gospel. I want them to get saved. Evangelism is, is, is a component of the Great Commission, but it's not the totality of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is make disciples. And a significant target uh, for that are saved. But they're not disciples. They're not living in the Word of God. And so much of what we want to stress in our Great Commission mandate is modeling the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, and being able to, to show these non-disciple believers that are our friends and neighbors and family members and loved ones and say, hey, don't you want to grow? Don't you want to glorify Christ? Don't you realize that he who began a good work in you will perfect it? Why aren't you getting on board in that perfection process? Okay? Because that's what it's about. And, and we should hopefully want to encourage. And, and, and really, this is, this is what it comes down to. This is how my dad got on doctrine years and years ago. 
He was, he was tired of, every, he was in a Baptist church and Sunday after Sunday after Sunday they kept preaching the gospel and telling him how to get saved. Inviting people to walk an aisle and they're doing an altar call and they're singing you know, just as I am and doing all this stuff. And, and, and after you know, weeks and months of that my dad just sitting there bored out of his skull saying, you know, what now? I get it, I'm saved. And then uh, he meets a preacher, a crazy street preacher on the street passing out tracks and uh, learns that, you know what, there's a whole lot more to the Christian life. You've got to learn the Scriptures. You've got to be in the Word of God. You've got to grow in grace and knowledge. And that comes about through the diligent study of doctrine. How, well, how do I do that? Where do I go? What churches do that? See, And in no clue that those kind of churches even exist. You mean there's places that teach that? <laughs> do I got to go to a seminary? Do I got to go to a Bible college? No, you got to go to a church where they're teaching the Word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept. And so uh, it's amazing how that happened. This was 1973. And uh, uh, that's, that was his introduction to, at that time it was known as Sunset Hill Baptist Church, later got renamed Evergreen. And uh, that's the church I grew up in where I got saved. And uh, that, street, that crazy street preacher, <laughs> by the way, you can see his picture in our fellowship hall because he's a supported missionary called John Eichmann, John Linda Eichmann. And uh, John Eichmann was one of the three pastors that ordained me in 1994. See, and it all came about on uh, starting on uh, First Avenue South in Seattle, Washington, uh, as uh, John Eichmann was passing out tracts. See, and he handed one to my father. My father was already saved; didn't need a gospel tract, but um, needed to learn about the Word of God and how to grow. All right, and so there it is. And in, I hope we understand this: that the, the goal of our instruction is love, right? From a pure heart, a sincere faith. We're not none of us should be going out there and, and just, we're not calling people names or we're not judging anybody or we're not, um, it's not with an attitude of superiority that says, you know, why are you going to that loser church? You should be at Austin Bible Church, <laughs> okay? We're the only ones in town teaching doctrine. I'm not saying that. But as we're modeling the Word of God, as we're living the Word of God, as it's becoming more and more clear that most folks here have a better handle on doctrine than some pastors in a lot of places around town. Okay, We want to just exhibit that stability because it comes from the, from the truth. Absolutely it comes from the truth. That's what we're saying. And so that's the goal of our instruction. Alright, so be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Doesn't that just happen automatically? I thought when I was saved, I was given a new self. Yeah, you were made, you were a new creation in Christ, but you've got to choose which self you're putting on every day. Because if you don't put on that new self every day, you've got that old self you're still putting on every day. Throw that off. Put on the new self. Make that conscious decision each morning. I'm going to live in the Word of God today. I'm going to live that out. And quit lying to yourself. All right. Because it is. Laying aside falsehood. Truth one another. All right, that's enough for Ephesians 4. We will teach Ephesians. That's coming up after Philippians and Colossians. All right, Philippians 3.15. Yeah, you're laughing, I know. Philippians 3.15. Therefore, as many as are perfect. You say, wait a minute, I thought none of us were going to claim that we were there. We're not claiming that we were there. But we're getting there. Okay? Think of it as a work in progress. Because Paul didn't say he was there yet. So what we're getting introduced to here in verse 1 is going to come back again, or I'm sorry, what we're getting introduced to here in chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will perfect it. It's going to come back again in chapter 3, big time. Okay? And uh, it's important that we realize humbly that we're not there yet. Verse 12 says we're not there yet. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Why did Christ save you? Okay? He had a purpose in mind and you're not there yet. You're on the way there. You're getting there. But you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. Paul said he wasn't there yet. But we're on the way there. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. I love that. And usually when that gets preached, that gets preached as, you know, forget the bad stuff you used to do. You know, forget all the sins, forget what, you know, what your life was like before you were saved, forget, you know, mistakes and regrets and forget, okay? 
You can preach that, but that's not what this text is saying. This text is actually telling you to forget the good things. Forget the, the victories. Forget the glories. Forget the fruit that's been born. Forget the positive things. Okay? Forget that. Have you, have you laid up treasure in heaven? Have you served the Lord? Have you done whatever? Okay? Have you, um, you know, don't bank on that. Don't rest on that. Don't grow complacent with that. You know, we did, yeah, we ordained Pastor Cliff in 2008. We ordained Pastor Dan in 2015. Forget about all that. What are you doing now? Are there new students now? Are you reaching forward now? See, don't grow complacent in what's already been done. Don't grow fat, dumb, and happy and say, oh, yeah, I'm really pleased with, with whatever. 5,302 Bible classes. Pretend you haven't taught anything. Just reach forward and teach another one tomorrow. All right. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. See, if you quit forgetting what lies behind, then you reach forward with more fervency. You reach forward with more, uh, as it says, pressing on. And you're not tempted in humanity to just rest on your laurels and say, oh, that's good enough. I've done enough. I mean, clearly I've done, I've done more than the next guy. So, you know, I start pointing to some people that I think I'm better than and I, I say, okay, I'm all right. Okay? God says don't do that. Press on. Press forward. I press upward. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. And see, this is what's defined as being perfect, is knowing that you're not, <laughs> okay? But pressing on to what he's doing. And if that's your attitude, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will uh, reveal that also to you, okay? He's good at that. God is, is actually well-practiced. Uh, well, he's, he's qualified and well-rehearsed, Okay? as the song says. He, can, he knows how to adjust our attitude. He's been doing it ever since day one. And He's going to keep doing it. He's going to keep doing it until the day of Christ Jesus. Remember, Philippians is the book that, that shapes our thinking. It's the book of our attitude. It tells us how to think and why. Or to have the attitude Christ had. The thinking that Christ had. Alright, so that's, uh, that's the application there. Colossians one twenty eight. Another use of the adjective. And here's, uh, really, this is a nice description of the church age and part of uh, what we're doing now in the body of Christ. Uh, Paul had never been to Colossae when he's writing this letter. He knew a lot of the people, but he had never been there. And... um, so he talks about this. In verse 24 he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Say, the afflictions of Christ. We become sharers in the sufferings of Christ. Not what he did on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, but what he's still doing today. What he's doing today in his body. That is the church. And there's all kinds of affliction going on. Uh, the Coptics were blown up just yesterday in, in a horrible attack there in Egypt. And the body of Christ continues to be afflicted. And are we partakers of that? We're supposed to be. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints. I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. The stewardship we have, this mystery, this body of Christ is unique in all of human history. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, Israel, they lived their stewardship. They operated, you know, that whole stewardship of Israel waiting for a glory to be revealed. We operate in a stewardship where that glory is already revealed. That glory is in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we get to operate in this reality day after day as long as it is called today. Okay, stay tuned. Hebrews is going to spell this all out for us. 
Verse 28 says, we proclaim Him, that's Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man teleos in Christ. That's why we preach Christ. The standard is Christ. The growth is is taking us to Christ. The standard is perfection. And if you're not there yet, then let's keep growing. And then we're not excusing sin and we're not making we're not redefining terms to say oh well you're okay the way god loves you the way you are no he doesn't i mean he loves absolutely but he he's changing you from the way you are now to where he wants you to be that's the whole point of this if he was okay with you the way you were why why did he save you all right yeah he could have kept christ in heaven why did he leave the ivory palaces why did he humble himself to come to this earth why did he die on the cross all right. So we uh, to present every man teleos in Christ. You know what? I got to give an account. I got to give an account. And in, in, in answering that, at the judgment seat, as you're standing there and I'm standing there, I got to give an account. What am I going to say? I want to say complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. Because that's what we're doing here. For this purpose, also I labor. You know what that is? That's Kapiao, striving to the point of exhaustion. If you're not exhausted in this labor, then it's not the verb kapiao. And you know, it doesn't say I just, you know, kind of part-time recreationally uh, chip in a little bit. He says, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I love that. All right, Hebrews 5.14. Hebrews 5.14. Here's more teleos. This is uh, in the admonishment here. By this time, you ought to be teachers. He introduces the idea of Melchizedek. And um, you'll notice, this is, this is, we're going to come back to this text again and again and again and again because in, uh, in verse 9 we see, he, having been made perfect, perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And we haven't gotten there yet. That's coming up because that's, uh, where is that coming up? It's coming up in point C when we get to the verb teleo. Uh, But Jesus himself was made perfect. That the sufferings of his first advent incarnation is what equipped him for what follows. What equips him for his session now at the right hand of God the Father. What equips him as the apostle and high priest of our confession. So uh, stay tuned for that. And being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, uh uh-oh, he used a word he shouldn't have used because his audience can't handle it. He says, concerning him we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The author here is calling out his readers and saying, you know what? You don't listen to doctrine the way you used to. You used to be hungrier than you are now. You're skipping more church lately. You don't have the appetite you used to have. You're not on the edge of your seat eagerly devouring the next message because, eh, ho-hum, heard that before. Okay? You become dull of hearing. And by this time, you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. That's a problem. That's a problem. You're 35 years old and you're still nursing. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So what is it? Do you want the milk or do you want the meat? And at a certain point you should be off the milk. You should be on the meat. And yet too many, uh, too many believers regress back to the milk stage. And that's, we'll deal with that when we talk about, is it possible to lose uh, growth? Is it possible to retrograde back? I can prove it biblically, and many of us can illustrate it experientially. Okay? But we'll prove it biblically first. <laughs> All right. Well, there it is. Solid food is for the teleos. Are you there yet? Okay. We should all be there. Teleos, eating the meat 
and knowing that God is perfecting us day by day and moment by moment. James 1.4. I use this a lot in the dreaded how are you question. You know, it's so trite. It's so meaningless. It's come to us in our culture. It's come to us in our language, right? And, and every language has these dumb things. In Spanish has them, you know, que paso, whatever. I mean, we all have que tal. I mean, really, do they care? Hi, how are you? Do you really care? Okay. It, it doesn't mean how are you. The person doesn't truly want to know. And you could bore them to death if you start to list some things and start to talk. They didn't really want to know. And so they ask, you just say fine, and then you go away. It's done. Okay? That's the, that's the ritual, right? Well, anyway. And besides, how do I, I if, even if I knew, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very finite in my understanding. I might think I'm great, and I'm really not. Or I might think I'm terrible. I'm really better than that, but I don't know that because I'm so busy thinking I'm terrible. The Apostle Paul said he didn't even examine himself, and I think that's a good model to follow. I'm not going to evaluate myself. That's God's business. He'll tell me at the judgment seat of Christ how I'm doing today. I don't know. Okay? But if you don't want to give a snarky answer and you want to give a, a, a biblical answer, use this passage. And say, how are you? I am perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's because... I'm considering it all joy when I encounter various trials. And every one of us can make that claim. Every single one of us can make that claim, only if, of course, you do consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. If you don't consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, then you cannot make this claim, as James does here in this verse. Backing up to verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That is an imperative telling you how to think telling you how to estimate something, how to consider something, right? We all make value judgments. We all consider everything. And we usually do it differently. Men and women especially consider all kinds of things differently. And, and I look at something, I'm willing to spend 100 bucks on that. And Sharon looks at the same thing and says, are you kidding? Do you know what we could use that $100 for? And it goes the other direction as well. She looks at something that says, explains to me what a great deal it was because it was only $55. And I'm saying, really? I didn't think it was worth that. Oh, well, normally it's, it's $85, but it's, uh, it's, uh, I got it for $55. Really? Okay. And so I estimated it a little lower than that, but she estimated it higher than that. So there it goes. Okay. And it goes, back, like I say, back and forth, opposite directions, because we think differently. Men and women are different. But now here's the thing. God says you can control how you estimate things. How you consider. Consider. And it tells you what to consider and how to consider. Consider the other person is more important than yourself. Okay? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Well, I don't think this is joy. Well, maybe it's not, but consider that it is. Okay? That doesn't mean you're having fun because you have a cancer diagnosis. It doesn't mean you're having fun because of you lost your job. It doesn't mean you're having fun because you know, your dog died. or what, Whatever the sad thing is you're going through, it probably is, really is sad. Great. Even though it is sad, consider it joy. Why? Well, because through this set of circumstances that the sovereign God assigned to me, He is glorifying Jesus Christ. And if I don't like it, well, I need to rethink. Because um, I'm not the one that created this plan from Alpha to Omega. So consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not just one thing at a time or two things at a time. Fifteen things all hitting you at once. Great. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know, until you're tested, you'll never have that endurance. The untested believer is the one that has no endurance until you've been tested. That's the only way to get it. See, it's like trying to run a marathon if you've never run a, a 5K. <laughs> you know, uh, hello, you want to build up to that? Okay. So testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its 
teleos, perfect result. In fact, a couple of expressions here. So that you may be teleos and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the goal. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. See, what you need in order to have this consideration is the wisdom from the Word of God that orients you to His standard, orients you to what He's doing. And if you don't have it, ask Him for it. All right, so that's our use there. Finally, 1 John uh, 4.18. Were we just in 1 John? No, not yet. Okay, 1 John. What kind of love casts out all fear? Teleos love casts out all fear. That's right. There is no phobos in agape. Okay? No such thing as agape phobia. <laughs> all right? There is no phobos in agape. And that's, that's uh, remarkable to me. You know, how many people are building their marriages on the wrong kind of love anyway? And then they're shocked that they have all these kind of fears. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> agape, that's the key. And there's no phobos in, in agape. But because teleos agape. Now, wait a minute. I thought agape was pretty perfect just as it is. You mean it's got to be perfected? Well, Christ was perfect just as he was, and he had to be perfected. Okay? There's more to this than I think we're paying attention to. So teleos agape casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not uh, teleao, perfected in love. That's the verb there at the end. And why do we love? Because he first loved us. We have the model, we have the example, we have the motivation, we have the empowerment, and that comes in and through Christ. So that's what we have there. All right, so we've gotten through the noun, we've gotten through the adjective, now we've got verbs. Hello, hello, verbs. Wake up, there we go. And uh, we'll see these together, teleo and teleao. Put them on the same slide. I don't know that there's a, a huge difference between them. Um, why is it teleo in certain cases and teleao in other cases? Um, it's hard to say. There's, the uh, experts try to delineate between them, and I'm, I'm not sure I, I buy everything they're saying. Um, it, it seems like in a lot of cases they they get they they've kind of conflated through the centuries. Maybe back in the classical era they had distinctions that could have been found in, 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 a, in a Doric dialect or an Ionic dialect at some point. But by the time we get to the, the Koine era and the New Testament period of, uh, of the Greek language, they were largely interchangeable and not much distinction be- between them. And that's, uh, that's quite often possible. Uh, teleo is number 5055 with 28 New Testament uses. I'm only listing three of them. In, uh, on this slide. And teleao, 5048 is the strongest number, has 23 uses. And uh, I listed a lot of those. Um, simply because I think, I mean, look at, the, look at the impact they have here. The Gospel of John, um, Philippians, we've got another Philippians use, and uh, Acts 20, which I always like to turn to in Paul's farewell speech there to the Ephesians. And then... Um, that's a long string of verses in Hebrews. <laughs> chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. Holy cow, what is that? Okay. And then, of course, 1 John. We saw several already in 1 John 4 in, uh, in that. Verse 12, verse 17, verse 18. So, you ready? Fingers still working? Back up to John then. John, uh, let's... Go ahead and combine these. Let's look at John 4 first. Let's take them in order. So John 4, 34. See what I'm doing there? I'm going to combine these. Just don't let me forget John 19, 30. All right. We're going to take these in canonical order. Starting with John 4, 34. And... Um, I love this story. I mean, man, how many times can he preach John chapter 4? Because uh, he's, he's, this woman's getting saved and the whole town's going to get saved and, and the disciples can't figure out why he's even talking to this woman anyway because she's a Samaritan. And it's just such a powerful story on this. 
And um, so they're, they're, uh, they're fleeing persecution, ultimately, and uh, they're leaving Jerusalem, headed north into Galilee. And you know that it's urgent because they're actually passing through Samaria instead of the normal route when they would go east and then north and then west so as to avoid Samaria. But they're just, they're just headed straight north through the, the region of the people who hate them. And, uh, and then he stops to, at a well and he sends them into the village to buy food, which uh, leaves him alone to talk to this woman. Okay? It's a great opportunity here. And um, so she's going to get saved, and she's going to bring a whole crowd out, and there's a great um, application there. But they come back then, verse 27, and at this point his disciples come, and they were amazed he'd been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, uh, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot, went into the city, and, and so she has a testimony there. And then uh, meanwhile, verse 31, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Right? They'd gone into the city to buy food. Okay? And I expect they paid a lot. They, they, paid, they would have paid more had they been headed towards Jerusalem, but still, as it was, they paid a lot being Jews buying food from Samaritans. And, um, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And, and just like uh, talking to the woman about water and she had no clue, he continues that idea. He's talking to the disciples about food and he's speaking about doing the will of God. <laughs> and so the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, somebody cheated. You know, Barnabas, not Barnabas, but, uh, you know, somebody, Thomas, Philip, probably Peter, you know, one of those knuckleheads, John maybe, who snuck out early and brought him some food? One of you guys. But he goes on to say, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And notice, to teleao his work. It's translated in English as accomplish. To accomplish his work. But Jesus thinks of it as a teleao. Speaks of it as a completion, as a perfection. That he views himself as a tool in the Father's hand. That the Father's the one that's at work in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. So anything that he does is really just completing, perfecting, accomplishing what the Father would have him do. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's a concept that we should spend more time thinking about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to teleao his work. Because it's God the one, God's the one that's doing the work. And if I achieve anything, I, if I teleao anything, it's because he's working in and through me of his good pleasure. And so uh, he goes on and illustrates with other things after that. But uh, that's interesting to me. All right, get down to chapter 5, 536. And um, again, with reference to the Father having sent him, and uh, some of the criticism about uh, um, healing this man and uh, telling him to take up his pallet and walk and, and uh, well, who told you to do that? And, and, uh, and then you can't do that on a Sabbath. How dare you heal this man on the Sabbath? I, Jesus says, it's a perfect day to do it. You know? You're giving him relief. You're giving him rest from his, his uh, affliction. He says, my father is working until now, I myself am working, right? In verse 17, yeah, that makes him even more mad. Now they want to stone him again. And so he gives them a whole series of messages here in verse 19 and following about how the son watches what the father does. He's learning from the father and he's doing the father's work. And uh, that itself becomes a testimony. So in verse 33, he says, you've sent to John and he has testified to the truth as John the Baptist. He is a witness. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. And then he talks about a greater testimony in verse 36. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to teleao, to accomplish, to perfect or to complete the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testifies about me that the Father has sent me. 
And so, you know, the, the conviction to be about our Father's business, the conviction to do what it is He's called you to do, that becomes a witness right there. When you're living your life as that living sacrifice and the unbelievers are looking at you, it's a witness. It's a witness. All right, well, it's 1030. We'll have to pick up on this on Wednesday night, Lord willing and rapture pending. So um, there we have it. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for what you are accomplishing in and through us. Thank you for opening our eyes to these scriptures. Thank you for impressing upon our thinking, Father, that a beginning is not a perfection and that we have um, the expectation from you to stand before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And if we can't stand before you and rightly dividing the word of truth, how can we possibly stand before you as living sacrifices? So Father, show us how these presentations work, these presentations here in time so that we can stand before you in eternity and not shrink away from fear. We stand before you with full reward. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.